episode 37 of commentators corner and i've got another great guest to join us on the show and uh i've known this man for quite a time we've uh we we keep in touch on a regular basis he only lives about 40 minutes from me down uh in the outskirts of uh chelmsford a very warm welcome sam hall how are you buddy hello yes i'm not bad at all and i'm definitely not coughing all over the place um (laughs) (laughs) so i I will just explain we have just had to restart the recording because i was an idiot and went through my wrong microphone so alex was interrupted by my um, asthmatic coughing it's nothing else honest exactly so sam one of the things i like my guests to do is to basically give a quick introduction about what who you are what you do and how long have you been in motorsport for? So take it away, the floor's yours. Um, so yeah, I'm Sam Hall. I'm currently an online editor for Autosport and Motorsport.com. Um, I have previously worked for Auto Week in the United States. Um, I worked for GP Fans for three years covering Formula One. Um, and I've been in motorsport this is going to seem like this going to make me seem older than I feel. Um, <laughs> I started with auto week in 2016, but prior to that, I think I've been actually working in motorsport since about 2012, 2011, 2012. Mm-hmm. Um, so over a decade of service now, which is uh, a scary thought. Which also includes a stint at Downforce Radio, where you can also listen to this podcast on as well. So uh, a warm welcome to our viewers, not just on YouTube, because obviously this is now part of YouTube podcast. We also have uh, the show broadcasting on audio, when, and you can play it whenever you like, completely free to either listen to or download, depending on your subscription uh, level when it comes to Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music, and of course on Downforce Radio. Well... Sam, we've known each other for, I think, the best part of close to a decade anyway. But journalism is a very, very interesting facet. It's a very, very demanding role within motorsport, irrespective of whether you're on the ground in a paddock like, say, you having worked with Auto Week and with GP fans. There were times when you were in the Formula One paddock. Just explain to the folks at home what a stereotypical day i wouldn't say typical day in on like say a formula one weekend because we both know that no two days on a race weekend are the same just give the folks at home a little bit of a flavor of what happens from your perspective when you are on on you know you're in the paddock and you're working in the media center over the course of a weekend so i will use the i'll use america last year austin last year as um as an example because that was kind of on the extreme for length of days. Um, so I would leave my accommodation, which is not a five-star luxury hotel, as you may expect. It's I was actually in a, a uh, Silver Stream or Silver Line, whatever they're called, caravan. Um, I was staying one of those. So I had to drive to the track um, about seven in the morning to avoid any traffic. Um, and then straight into the paddock, straight into the media center bump into people as you're walking through the paddock talk to people um get as much information as you can because to be honest you're always working you never stop working you went as soon as you're in the paddock you are taking in that information and using that as color to pass on to your readers listeners whatever it might be that you're doing that day um so then so you get obviously the media sessions that are planned you have the on track stuff um and those are the easy bits those are the bits that sort of the the big bits that you expect to be the hard things but they're not they're the easy bits because that's when you are just doing your job you i find it easiest to talk to drivers and team bosses whoever it might be as if they're just a friend as if sort of they are on the same level as me because the way i see it when i'm in the paddock they are there to do a job 
and I am there to do a job. So we are all working professionals in the paddock. No one is above the other person. Yes, if I'm chatting to Lewis Hamilton, he may have a hell, he does have a hell of a lot more money than I do. So in stature and in wealth, he is far more important than I am. But in that paddock, at that time, we are both there to do a job. So we are equals. Um, and generally, people seem to be like that in the paddock. Yes, you'll have one or two that seem to think that they're above each other, um, both on the journalistic side, maybe, and also on the, not really on the driving side, but definitely on the team side, there are a couple. Um, so yeah, it's, and it, you just never stop. This this is the thing I, I need to get across because trying to get a lunch break, trying to get a meal break or time to just go and grab a quick drink. Last year when I was with GP fans in that paddock, there was two of us working. So there was one person, you and Gail, um, who you will be aware of as well, Alex. Um, he was back at home working European hours and I was obviously working American time. So the reason I mentioned the time that I left my caravan each morning, I got back to there each night at just gone midnight. So I would be there for sort of six, five maybe hours if I was lucky. Um, so I really feel for the people that have been in Vegas and in Abu Dhabi because they are going to have had a really horrible time getting used to these time differences and being able to work while pretty much never stopping it's it's crazy it's if you want to get into motorsport journalism can't recommend it high highly enough but you need to be a certain breed of person to to cope it's a very good way of putting it i mean sam and i have worked together we were in the paddock during the brand finale of w series in its inaugural season where we were seeing a great battle between jamie chadwick and bikes Kivissa, which went down to the wire that weekend it was a double header of course it was running with uh, the tip, the stereotypical visit to Brands Hatch Grand Prix that DTM have done over the last few years, and uh, the the thing is, is that from my perspective, I mean, I started in in get it going into paddocks in 2013, and that was all thanks to the checkered flag and Vince Pettit. I mean, I took on DTM, and I can I can sort of echo what Sam has said because you're going in there, you you might be someone who's established you might be someone who's a newbie but you are all putting in the same amount of effort you're transcribing interviews you're trying to create content for the website um i still remember 2016 i was at the hockenheim series finale in hockenheim and i remember doing no it was 2014 actually my apologies it was 2014 it was Marco Wittmann's first title in the DTM. And at that point for BMW, they had a premium partner, which was Red Bull. So uh, and this is how Sam very well put across that you find out information. And it can be from people like, say, photographers who are friends within the paddock. You'll, work, you'll know a couple of photographers that you work with cl quite closely or have become good friends with. And one of them came in, uh, Jerry Andre, actually, who's been in the Formula One paddock uh, for a few years. I mean, especially doing quite a bit of work with Sebastian Vettel before he retired. And then Fernando moved over uh, when we had all that hoo-ha in a silly season where we didn't know where Fernando was going. And then he dropped the bombshell one weekend, like literally the day after uh, Seb went, I've now decided at the end of the season to retire from Formula One. Jerry came in with um, another guy, um, Andreas, uh, who was doing a lot of work for, for Speed Week, the Austrian publication. And they said, you're not going to believe this, Wittmann's got a test in a Toro Rosso. And I went, come on. And we're, we're all conversing in German. And I said, please don't, t is, is this a joke? Are you BSing us? They went, no, the press release is about to come out. So I contacted one of my friends over at BMW Motorsport and said, I've just heard, can you just let me know, is this going to be official very shortly? And I said, I've just heard about Vitman and the test. Yes, it is confirmed. But we are going live with the press release in an hour. So it was my last weekend with the checkered flag because I was moving on to touring cars on it the following season. 
And then I posted it on Richland F1. So Luke Smith, be warned, I am coming after you for an interview on Commentator's Corner as well. Um, and then the first person to re to quote the tweet at that point was none other than the legend that is Mr. Will Buxton, which was, I have to say, pretty cool because earlier on that year, I'd been in the Formula One paddock and there was also not only just Will, and this was at the time when he was, I think him and Jason Swells were still working for NBC Sports, if I remember correctly. 2014. Uh, when would that mean? 2014, so. yeah. I was chatting to Jason not long ago about that, so yeah, I should know that one. <laughs> but yeah, I think um, we we there were very early get-ups. You know, the first thing that you've got to do is make sure that you are not stuck in that traffic because that mm. stops your workflow. Um, but also there's another side to the journalistic side of things because with Autosport, you're the news editor, but you're also covering other series like this weekend as we're recording this we've had the f2 finale in abu dhabi obviously there's been the f2 testing there's been the young driver test in formula one you've also been in the british gt paddock this year um how is it going so far with autosport and motorsport.com as the news editor because you're speaking to some of the big people that a lot of people know when it comes to f1 journalism especially john noble uh, who yep. always seems to be whenever there's an announcement made he's always in the air that seems to be the journalistic curse for john <laughs> noble that he's always in the air and something breaks um how's it been there with 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 working with the team so far it's been good. It's been different um, because I've come from working with a very small team of three of us um, to going into a bigger team where you still think there's not enough of you, but it's it's a far bigger team um, that we've got on offer. And as you say, so you're speaking to these people on a daily basis that not that I grew up reading necessarily, but that you sort of hold in high esteem and you go okay, I'm working with these guys now. It's almost, and when I joined, it was sort of, okay, I've almost, it was that moment of I've made it now. Um, whereas sort of obviously works in Formula One before, like say three solid years um, of GP fans. And, but it's just sort of a different level that you go up to and, there's chances for progression which I haven't had in my career before it's always been sort of you've come in here and this is where you shall stay um so yeah I can't I can't speak highly enough of the publication and the people and we've got the Autosport Awards coming up this weekend on Sunday as we record um so that's going to be uh that's going to be another new experience um got to go and get my tux for that tomorrow as well so uh, see if the one that will fit the added girth of sitting in a chair all day um uh, but also we have to look at the other side of the coin family life now sam is married has got two beautiful daughters um how is it when you're having to juggle being a news editor at autosport and having a young family um i i guess that must be pretty taxing at times especially like say if there's an emergency that crops up uh, not just with you, yourself uh you know not just from your side of the family but your, your wife emma her side of the family there yeah. are those times when you have to sort of prioritize the family over the journalistic endeavors am i right yeah and it's that wasn't always always possible before um I'll go back to compare it with GP fans that with the team of three of us, it was always where possible. So we had the ruling, um, Ian Parks, um, New York times journalist as well. Um, he was our editor in chief and he always said family comes first. So if I had something like one, of the kids birthdays, I w that would come first. Um, the one time that we couldn't manage that ironically was America last year. Um, because he was away, so I had to go to America. It's, it sounds like it is a first world problem, um, but it's it is very taxing on family life. Um, with a bigger team, we are able to say, "Look, I've got this. I need this time," and it isn't. It's never a problem if there's an emergency. It's never a problem, but in your head, you just kind of go, 
I'm supposed to be working. I'm supposed to be doing this. So I, I don't like asking for time off. I don't like asking for help. Um, to the point where I ended up putting myself in counselling last year, um, which is an entertaining, uh, entertaining thing to go through. Um, but like I said earlier, you've got to be a special breed of person to take this on. And I don't want to scare people off, but you have to be aware of the tax that it will take on your family life. You can't, um, it's uh, my sister's weddings coming up next year. So I've long had that date in the diary and gone, I am not working then. And I'm not working the day after either because I plan on having a hangover. Um, so uh yeah it's uh, you you've got to prioritize family but it is very difficult and once traveling gets added into the mix that is the hardest bit because what people on your social media see is oh you're going to this place you're going to that place that's that must be wonderful you're living the life but what they don't see is sort of the things that you're missing or sacrificing at home um without wanting to make myself sound like a martyr there it's it's good there are good experiences but they come at a cost i mean especially like say having to go to kota last year you know you're having to deal with different time zones you're having to deal with having to combat jet lag as well i mean especially when uh you know it's like five hours behind us so like seven o'clock in the morning mm -hmm. is midday here so like from Eastern Eastern time, so UK time, be it GMT or, uh, or British summer time, you have to take that into account. Um, is that the longest you've ever had? Is that the furthest away you've ever had to travel to be on site? Or has there been anywhere a little bit further afield in terms of uh, flight duration? Because I know for a fact that like, say, Bahrain from London Heathrow is just under seven hours each way so as a combined 14 hours round trip i think for for mm. texas it was a, a lot longer for you wasn't it i honestly can't remember what i know the trip was horrible coming back because and i was very lucky um because i flew into dallas and then on to austin but um which made it a bit longer but was more cost effective as you'd soon discover everything has to be cost effective um but there were thunderstorms on the way back, so uh, I had I got to Austin Airport about five hours early for my flight. Just going, if these thunderstorms hit, I need to already be in Dallas, or I'm not getting home. Um, I don't know if it's longer. It probably was longer because of my the way I did it. But Bahrain was a long one, and Dubai is about the same as that. It's about eight hours. Um, so yeah, I've I've done a couple of longer ones, but Australia is still one that I would uh, quite like to tick off. Um, as we may get to, we may get to my love of Australia and Australian motorsport. Well, we will actually get to that right now because this man <laughs> had, I think, one of the best interviews of his career with a certain, yeah, he's wearing the Aussie rugger shirt as well, uh, none other than the legend that is Mark Scaife. Uh, you got to interview him, I think it was near Autosport 2018, if I remember correctly, Autosport Show so, yeah. 2018 at the NEC, which I think, if I remember correctly, was my last appearance because I'd done it from 2012 for a multitude of years and 2018 I felt, mm -hmm. uh, well, it's time to sort of knock that on the head. And... Um, yeah, you you had the first interview with him, and um, you have a little trinket in your possession, don't you? That you asked for a an autograph on it, and said interviewee kindly reciprocated, didn't he? Yes, and uh, he kindly also uh, bear in mind he's kind of an encyclopedia of supercars. Um, this is Mark Scaife that we're on about here, um, multiple champion and now commentator. Um, and yeah, I I have one of his Bathurst winning cars, a one forty three model. I have many one forty threes, but uh, I I took that along on the off chance I'd bump into him, let alone interview. Um, and yeah, he he signed that. So now 
I am after Craig Lowndes, if possible, um, to complete the set on that. I am that kind of person. Um, <laughs> fortunately, when, when I've met Jensen Button, I have not ta- not had my collection of cars on me, so uh, that that might take him a while to sign those that lot. Well, Australia is definitely on your bucket list because there's one particular race that this man wants to go to, and it is, of course, the Repco Bathurst 1000 that happens at the tail end of every supercar season. Let's have a talk about actually this year because uh, Gizzy is now moving over to NASCAR full-time for 2024. Brody Kostecki and Erebus took the respective titles this year, which I have to say... Uh, considering the fact there were so many doubters about Gen 3 with the Camaros and the Mustangs now being under a bit more of a parity situation. Because for those that don't know that with uh, Supercars Australia, they are, they've they now gone to, it used to be Holden and Ford, it's now Ford versus Chevy. Um, what's been your thoughts on how the new Gen 3 car has really sort of spiced things up? Because I've, I've watched quite a few of the highlights over the course of the season. Uh, I have to give a shout out to Compo, Neil Crompton, and also uh, uh, the, the infamous man in the pit lane. Uh, for those people that don't know, Larco. You got there in the end. <laughs> yeah, I got you there in the end. I was, I, no, I was stalling because <laughs> I was trying to remember, and I didn't want to get it wrong. So, Larco, you do a fantastic job as always. Lounge is great on 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 commentary as well. Uh, but of course, Neil Crompton um, having that, you know, that illness scare just, I think it was 18 months ago and he's come back and he's, he's just as fire, fiery and passionate as always, whenever mm. uh, things get underway. But what have been your thoughts? What have been your take homes from, from 2023 with regards to Gen 3 and supercars? Um, if you watch the highlights, they probably look pretty good. The racing, um, but having watched every lap of it as live, or if not actually live, um, the racing has left a lot to be desired. I think they're some of the best-looking touring cars possibly ever. They're brilliant-looking things now. Um, but the racing has been pedestrian, I want to say. Um, especially Bathurst this year, it was it left a lot to be desired. Um, and the ongoing parity battle between Ford and Chevrolet, um, the Chevrolets came out of the blocks brilliantly. The car seemed, the chassis seemed to suit everything. The aerodynamics suited everything. Ford have gradually made incremental gains, um, but I don't know whether the last parity change has gone too far um, because Ford seemed to be winning machines since then, and historically Adelaide. Um, hasn't been a Ford hunting ground, but it seemed to be this weekend or last weekend. Um, so uh, I, it, it need it needs work. They're going and doing wind tunnel testing to get these cars properly level, and then essentially they can draw draw a line under parity. And uh, I think there might be swear jars for the word parity next year. Um, but they're going over to America with one of each car to do wind tunnel testing um, and proper aerodynamic testing. So the engines have been run on the dyno to death. So they are as level as you can get for two different engines. I think what people need to remember now is that different cars are always going to be different and have different strengths. If you want a one-make series, have a one-make series. Then you'll have full-on parity. If you want to have different cars, you'll going to have divergence at some point um that said it was kind of obvious to everyone seemingly except for those in charge of supercars for quite a long time this year that the chevrolets had i don't want to say an unfair advantage because they had the better car if they've got the designed the better car that's not their problem um so but yeah the, the chevrolets did have an advantage until this recent change um, that I think it came in for the Gold Coast. Yeah, Gold Coast and Adelaide um, because they were denied it for Bathurst. I think also because it's an early genesis of the car that hopefully in the next couple of seasons we should see more relevance in terms of the 
the equalization i'm not going to use the word the, the p word we'll, we'll, <laughs> we'll stop using that word it's like saying balance of performance in gt3 and that's already oh, it. No, don't that's, go been, there. that's been a soft spot that's been a soft spot for heart attacks for many people in the gt3 well but i think yeah it's the first season it was always going to be a, a, a trial and error phase of the gen 3 cars they look awesome they sound great i love the fact that the um the engines are pretty much as close to road spec you know they've been taken from the respective manufacturers and the amount of work that's gone with the technical team at supercars to try and get them as equalized as possible has been a mammoth task i mean it was always going to be a case that gen 3 the drivers were going to have to work harder for those points for those wins for those podiums and i think it's nice to see like gostecki and, and erebus now be at that stage where they've gone you know we've made the best of the situation i mean if anyone might remember when the mustang came out you know when the falcon mm, yeah. when the, when the falcon was uh competing against the commodore vb which effectively was a holden badged insignia for yep. those wondering um as soon as they got rid of the falcon went into the mustang the mustang was a was literally winning everything and that's why scotty mack scotty mclaughlin mr jandal himself is now going into indycar in another season which i'm really really glad to see um i think it that was that was another that was a case of a reverse of what we had this year with the Gen 3s, with Chevrolet Racing Australia coming in with the, the with the Camaro mm. ZL1. And then, of course, the Mustang, which is a tried and true product. But then, of course, Ford Performance, Mark Holbrook and the team over in Dearborn in Michigan having to... They were a little bit on the back foot, I think, in terms of the mm. car. But because of the Mustang being an icon, you can't not have that silhouette... Uh, away from supercars and i think hopefully season two gen three season three we'll see a further evolution of that equalization and hopefully that'll be providing more bang for your buck racing i mean it's great that they've got less to play with because Mm. um for those wondering it's a bit like say gt3s in that supercars wanted to bring costs down for teams in general and they were like saying i was i was seeing like front uprights on suspensions and they were being custom built and teams like triple eight uh <laughs> dj arpensky were spending so much money trying to optimize it trying to make it as light but as strong as possible and to give the drivers just so much tactile feel on slight nuances on setup but that's very much changed they don't have as much abs or traction input as they used to they can't set the cars up like they used to so i'm really really pleased that it's going in the right direction, but it needs another couple of, couple of years, I think, to really sort of hit that sweet spot, wouldn't you agree, Sam? Yeah, um, as with anything, it's you don't get results immediately. I mean, the best thing about these cars is they resisted the urge, much because the drivers pushed for it, they resisted the urge to go for flappy paddle gears. So they've still got the gears, then sequential, it's not a H pattern, they haven't had that for ages. But it's got sequential gears on the floor. You've got your clutch. Um, so you actually see them, especially going around Bathurst, you get the cameras in the footwells and you see the feet dancing across across the pedals. It's it's a whole different skill. I think you... And we've seen Kevin Estre um, race at Bathurst this year. Um, and he's someone who isn't... He's no slouch at all. Um, but he struggled to get to grips with these cars. Um, They don't have much downforce, which is a good thing as much as Shane Van Gisbergen, my words will come out, Shane Van Gisbergen complained about that because he liked the warm, fluffy towel of downforce that obviously helps you go quicker. Um, So yeah, we'll, we'll find out in a couple of years, never judge something on its first year because it's all trial and error. I think also when you look at the fact of how many drivers that have come into supercars over the years, I mean, just to name a few people that have actually rocked up to the Bathurst 1000, uh, Simona de Silvestro, um, she's come back and back again uh, to supercars, especially when it's co-driving for Enduros. You've had Jason Plato, you've had Andy Prio, you've had Matthias Ekstrom. I still remember Zandvoort 2013, 
and it was the penultimate round of the DTM season. Mike Rockenfeller won the title. Augusto Farfas won the race. But Matthias Ekstrom and Andy Prio were then flying directly to Australia after that weekend because they were in the Xbox Holden Commodore wildcard that weekend. And I said to, I said to a, uh, Andy, I went, you looking forward to Bathurst? He said, yeah, it's going to be interesting teaming up with Eki. You know, and um, I still remember when JP actually had that big crash at one point. He, I think he was coming onto some traffic or something and uh, got launched and that his Holden got rolled quite uh, quite spectacularly, if I remember correctly, a few years ago. Yeah, I mean, I I miss having the international drivers um, because it used to be a rule that you had to have international drivers. Um, and yes, I like that they're giving national drivers and Super 2 drivers more of a chance because otherwise, how do you get the progression? And you are seeing these drivers get into full-time seats afterwards. And you only have to look at Will Brown, Brock Feeney more recently, who's done a fantastic job this year. Um, again, he's going to have a difficult time next year because essentially he's going to be leading the Triple Eight team in the absence of Van Gisbergen. Um, oddly, I've just named his teammate as well, Will Brown. So uh, clearly Triple Eight on the mind there. Um, but no, I mean... Uh, I, I think next year's going to be an exciting season. The team, the pairings always look good because there's so little between the drivers. Um, you haven't asked for a prediction, but I'm going to give one anyway. Um, I, re I reckon Cam Waters is going to be very difficult to beat next year for the championship. Um, him and Chaz Mostert, both in Mustangs that are potentially performing on a level um, with, with the Commodores, um, or not Commodores anymore. Um, but yeah, it's uh, Kostecki's got his work cut out to keep his title. I don't think he will, um, but I think it's going to be a really good battle next year, and it could be. So, yeah, I don't want to say a classic season, but it could be. It will be a lot better of a season next year. We we talk about drivers from supercars that have mul won multiple titles. You look at Lounsey, who's done domestic and international GT3s. Uh, you see Mozzie was in the the Sun Energy car at uh, Spa-Francorchamps that started at the pit lane, and then they ended up winning their class, I think it was. Or one of the other... Well, it was the Sun Energy car that got wrecked in uh, free practice, didn't make it through to qualifying. The owner of the team was actually on the blower to Mercedes saying, we need a new car. They got a new car, got it all wrapped up and everything. It started from the pit lane and won its glass after 24 hours. But you look at, like, say, uh, Shane Van Gisbergen going over to NASCAR next year full-time. Scott McLaughlin has really endeared himself to the IndyCar public. He's been a firm fan favourite out there. Um, it does go to show that Supercars isn't just a de facto touring car championship, wouldn't you say? Yeah. Um... I mean, th these are world-class athletes, um, and you look at the the ability or difference in abilities between the drivers and supercars, and from the top to the bottom, it's not a lot. Um, yes, though, you obviously do have the drivers that are better, but if I was to compare it to British touring cars, where you've got sort of your real top talent like Ash Sutton, Colin Turkington, you've then got some drivers at the rear end of the grid that you kind of go well you're there because you've paid for it and good for you you've paid for it to do something you want to do but you're not really they are there to compete but they're not competitive i think that's the difference um whereas, whereas in supercars you might have one or two like that in british drawing cars you it feels like you've got more um so I think a lot of supercars drivers would do very well in America. Um, the attitude seems very much the same to NASCAR um, in supercars, where rubbing is racing. Um, and I'm I am surprised McLaughlin went to the IndyCar route. Um, I thought he would do very well in NASCAR, um, and I fully expect to see him and Van Gisbergen racing maybe alongside each other in something in the future. Um, earlier this year, actually, I was doing some work 
before joining Autosport, I did some work for Speed Cafe covering uh, IndyCar for a couple of races, and I got to speak to McLaughlin. And um, I asked him, would you consider coming back to supercars to race alongside Van Gisbergen? And this was before the NASCAR move was announced. And I said, because Scott now races in a Chevrolet IndyCar. Um, a hiccup there. That sounded weird. Uh, but he raced in a Chevrolet IndyCar. And obviously, Van Gisbergen was racing in a Chevrolet supercar. So you can begin to put the pieces back together. but where McLaughlin was so he was the antichrist really for then Holden fans um he doesn't feel he could race in a Red Bull liveried car with Shane um so whether or not they will come back to Bathurst together at some point as a super team that is something of great interest to me and probably to all supercar fans um mm-hmm. but i Shane Van Gisbergen, his um, his NASCAR debut, it couldn't have gone any better. I mean, he won the race. I, th- I don't think anyone had ever done that. If it, if it had been, it was only once it had been done where a driver wins on on debut. And uh, he's going to be brilliant over there. I wouldn't tip him for championship honours or anything in the first year, maybe two years, but like McLaughlin, I think, is a future IndyCar champion. Uh, Van Gisbergen is a future NASCAR champion. And for supercars in Australian motorsport and New Zealand motorsport as well, I should put that one out there, seeing these drivers going elsewhere and doing well, it's it's just incredible. It's going to inspi- inspire that next generation. Well, that's all the uh, the general uh, chit chat out of the way because I've got some, I've got some questions. Uh, but first of all, we're going to go to funny moments on social media. So Sam, I want you to cast your mind back to November sixteenth because there was a certain post you put on Twitter saying a quite literal overtake on Gran Turismo this evening, where you've got a. <laughs> A Ampol Red Bull Racing liveried car doing the old Dukes of Hazard over Subaru Impreza WRX. So that picture is now on the screen. Um, talk to us about your uh, penchant for for Gran Turismo, but explain to us how on earth you managed to capture that shot. What were you thinking when you launched it like Knight Rider? Um, well, that <laughs> that's a Nissan Skyline in. With Downforce, um, I still do a retro and racing managers league, and my team is the Red Bull Tyrrell team. So that's actually my announced my 1992 season driver's livery on that car. So uh, yeah, it's that has I think a thousand horsepower that car. So when I when I approached that hill, which I knew you can jump in a ten horsepower car anyway. I absolutely gunned it and just went, yeehaw, let's see what happens. <laughs> and I did actually complete that overtake without even touching the car underneath it. Um, just jumped the whole thing clean and went, yep, this is pretty cool. So um, I went back and watched the replay, got the picture as as proof, because uh, why not? Um but my main thing on Gran Turismo is creating liveries on minis. I absolutely love, for some reason, doing that with retro or up-to-date F1 and supercars and mm. I've done NASCAR, IndyCar on there, whatever liveries I take my fancy, really. Yeah. Uh, right, so we uh, we do need to get through some questions. Quick-fire questions. Well, not quick-fire questions. We've still got about 20 minutes to fill anyway. Um, But what was the first ever motorsport event that you attended? So can you tell me specifics such as when, where, what racing did you see, and who was the catalyst that brought you along for the ride? Um, It would have been my dad that took me. It would have been Brands Hatch. And I am unable to say which championship it would it probably was something national it was probably just a national meet at brands hatch um because we used to go once maybe twice 
a year, if not, if maybe more, if we were lucky. Um, but we'd usually go to sort of club meetings. We'd do a couple of touring car things every now and again, but always at Brand Tachkas. That was our local track, really, um, just over the Dartford Crossing. Um, so, yeah, it would have been Brand Tach. Um, yeah, and that just got me into racing. I mean, my first memory is actually watching it's quite a macabre one really um is Ayrton Senna's tragic passing um and I remember Murray Walker coming on the news and giving well the the announcement um and I was fortunate enough to actually interview Murray Walker at his house and so I was able to say to him sort of this is really weird I'm actually meeting my first memory here um so that takes it on a different turn. It does. It does. Um, have you ever been starstruck meeting a racing driver or a personality within motorsport? No, definitely not. Um, I am entirely professional when I'm in a paddock or anything, and I I have that bit of arrogance where, I, like I said earlier, you just got to go, I'm here to do a job, you are here to do a job. Um, the one time I have been, actually, no, I was slightly starstruck once. Um, and that was during COVID. Um, and it was the first press conference that we did, uh, online with Mick Schumacher. And it was only for a split second because obviously he looks a lot like his dad. And I was a big fan of his dad growing up. I had Michael Schumacher calendars and model cars and everything. So, um, so when his face popped up on the screen for and it would have only been a split second it wasn't even so he he couldn't even start talking before that moment had passed it was just that split second of that's michael in front of me not mick um so that that was weird um but yeah the only other time was an ipswich player when i was on work experience no one else has heard of this player lucas Savilli. He um he got a nasty injury, so he barely played for us. But I walked past him in a corridor and just went, "Oh, it's you." <laughs> so, uh, yes, yeah, random Ipswich players that no one's heard of. Yes, racing drivers, not really. And for those that don't know, well, this man is a devout uh, Ipswich Town FC fan, and the amount of times I've seen on his Facebook profile when uh, he's been. At uh, Portman Road, <laughs> on a regular, night. At, oh god! <laughs> you see, you can't you can't tear a football fan away from the local terraces. Um, penultimate question for you, Sab. From the top of your head, that comes into your mind right now. Apart from one that you've just mentioned, which was obviously Murray talking about Ayrton's passing at Imola in 1994. Name for me the first three memories that come into your head of moments in motorsport that you will never forget? Um, one was at Silverstone on the... I've got to get the year right. Murray signed this program for me. I think it was 1996. I went to the Friday testing day at Silverstone and Damon Hill came around yeah i was on the outside of one of the corners and he came around and he was just waving at the crowd but in my head for some reason he was waving at me so so that that's one that's that's just a personal one there um another one um that i was at a1gp um when that had its first ever round at brand hatch i was standing with my mum dad and my sister at um, at Paddock Hill Bend and the Team Lebanon car that famous motor racing nation came barrel rolling into the gravel right in front of us um, so that was that was quite spectacular and that event actually as a whole was was brilliant um, the third one I'll, I'll just keep these personal um, World Superbikes at Brands Hatch um, Carl Fogarty's last year that he was racing he got injured, so he wasn't racing that weekend. Um, 
me and my dad for my birthday i'd been got full weekend tickets to brands hatch um we were there on the saturday on the sunday we couldn't find the tickets in the car they weren't there <laughs> they'd gone missing uh they weren't in the tent they weren't in the car um q1 very upset i think 10 11 year old um and fortunately at that point you could get away with going this per i've recognized this person so the person on the gate recognized us and they checked so dad i don't know what he had he had something that he could prove that he had bought these tickets so we we got in there but when i was told before if it didn't work when i was told oh we can get home to watch it on the telly you can imagine the reaction of that's not gonna work for me um <laughs> so <laughs> yeah that that would that's um they're three personal ones i could probably go into three sort of on track well, controversies or whatever, but could, they're three personal do, memories. But we'd we'd probably exceed our limit on this episode. But you know, <laughs> those, that's actually quite a nice perspective to have as well. So, Sam, uh, this is your final question, and this is where we flip things around a little bit. And I ask Sam what his response will be, and then I give a corresponding response in my own right. So, Sam, this can what only your... go well. This will go well, hopefully. Uh, Sam Hall, your final question here on episode on this episode of Commentators Corner is as follows. If you had no budget, no glass ceiling, unlike the cost caps in Formula One, that is a running gag. I always use it on, the, on this question. You can have a choice of a road and a race car to drive, and you can pick one circuit to, to drive those cars around. What would you choose? And can you, as briefly as you can, tell me why? Ooh, do I go for a supercar or do I go for an F1 car? That's a, that's, no, I've got to go with an F1 car. I know what it's going to be. It's going to be the Braun GP car. That, that's, that's the race car I'll go with. Um, because as I said earlier, massive Jensen Button fan, um, I think I'm only missing three mod one to forty three models of his cars. Um, so uh, anyone who has them for sale, please hit me up. Um, but uh, <laughs> but no, it it would have to be the Braun GP car. I think it's one of the best looking F1 cars um, in chassis design wise. I I think it's one of the best liveries. So was it one of each? Was it one one actual road car and one? One motor motor racing one, car. One one race car, one road car, and oh, no, you have okay. to pick a circuit for each one. Okay, um, so I would take the Braun GP um, to Brands Hatch because there's it's it's not the I'll I'll go Brands GP if you want specific um, because there, there's some gravel, there's some grass runoff. So if you bin it, you kind of you yeah, that's on you. Um, the other car I would have, the road one, would be a Ferrari F40. Um, for as long as I can remember, that's been my favourite supercar. For no reason more than it's got a whacking great spoiler on the back and it looks cool. Literally it. Um, anyone who's driven one has described it as a go-kart with a bigger engine. Um, so, And it is just driver or man and machine. It's it's. There's no computers really in the way. It's just you make a mistake, it's on you. And I would take that to Bathurst because I've got to get Bathurst in there somewhere. And <laughs> I would feel safer in the F40, I think, than in the Braun. Okay. Right, so here's my response. Okay, we're going to stick with 2009 when it comes to Formula 1. You're saying Braun GP, so I can't have that one, unfortunately, folks, as much as I would love to. Um, yes. I'm going to go with a car that picked up second in the Canadian Grand Prix that year. And it was the BMW Sauber F109, piloted by someone who has just decide, who's just been announced as a WEC driver in a 499p Ferrari for 2024, of course, Robert Kubica. And I would take it to Canada. So the circuit to Gilles Villeneuve. So that's my response on that one. 
So Ferrari Ferrari F forty. Okay. Um, just trying You're to go McLaren F one, aren't you? No, I'm gonna Ooh. no 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 no. I'm going to go with the slightly more powerful version of the F forty, and there were two of them. There was the F forty LM, but then there was also the F forty Competizione, which uh, was a non-sponsored, more powerful version of the LM. You want more power from a car that is notoriously hard to handle well, as it is. Well, the the fu- the funny thing is, um, it was actually a car that ended up racing in the in the in the JG, uh, JGTC, so the Japanese GT Championship, uh, because. F, the F40 was running in Emsa in 1990, but did not return for the 91 season. So I'm going to say F40, Competizione, and considering it did race in Imza, I'm not going to go with an American track. I'm going to go with <laughs> Suzuka, because obviously it harks back to the days of Senna v Prost, especially in the latter stages of their title battles, where was Prost? When he got annoyed of being at McLaren, he went to Ferrari and Suzuka being a place where multiple incidents happened between <laughs> Senna and Prost over the years in that, Did they? In that... I don't recall these. Mm, I wonder. But Sam, uh, where can everyone find you on social medias, mate? Um, they can find me on Twitter at SH underscore 48 racing. Um, I think that's still it. Um, yeah. And on Instagram, I believe it's at Sam Hall Sport. Um, mm-hmm. Or if you really want to keep up with random F1 liveries on minis, you can follow Mini F1 Guy on Instagram. Well, Sam, it's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you so much for jumping on board for this episode of Commentator's Corner. It's been a real hoot. Thank you. So, folks, that's it. We've got more guests lined up. Uh, so that's the end of episode 37 here on Commentator's Corner. Got some great guests lined up. Uh, there are a few more episodes to bring us to the end of the 2023 calendar year because our last episode will be uh, launching on the 23rd of December, the day before Christmas Eve. But don't forget, you can listen to us on Downforce Radio, the nation's motorsport station, Apple Podcast, Amazon Music, Spotify, or even watching it here on youtube thank you so much for taking the time out of your respective schedules ladies and gents so if in doubt flat out and we'll see you next time goodbye Thank you.